0: Amen. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer today, and then we will jump into our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today to celebrate um, just remembering the sacrifice that Christ has made for us through your communion. We, we just even pray as we jump into the book of 1 Thessalonians that uh, you have just prepared a word for us to walk away with that we can apply in our lives to be better disciples, to be better Christ followers, and to love you better and to love other people better as well. We pray that you guide our time this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, good morning, everyone. This, uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to drive over to Milwaukee with a large group of people and attend my first Brewers game. And I have to say... Uh, yeah, there's, there's some cheers. There you go. I had to say it was a little difficult because it was the second time in two weeks I had to watch Wisconsin teams thrash my childhood sports teams of the Steelers and the, and the Reds. <clears throat> so it was a little humbling, but at the same time, it was still a lot of fun. And during our time over there, my wife Megan and I had the awesome opportunity to get to hang out with three incredible and yet very energetic little girls And by the end of the day, and multiple packets of bubbles and, you know, a sore back from being used as a gymnastic set, uh, later, we realized that parenting is great, but boy, is it also a lot of work and difficult as well. And that was only three girls for one afternoon. So parents out there, they're doing it full time. I You have my respect, especially as I've been to Wisconsin and realized there's some people that have three, four, seven, a baker's dozen of kids. I don't know how you guys do it, but uh, i'm I'm kind of blown away uh, blown away by that. So parenting is a journey that's fun and exciting, but there's also moments as parents when that journey is filled with seasons of difficulty and apprehension and concern, and a lot of those seasons have to deal with the moment when a parent has to start stepping back and letting go a little bit, and seeing, anxiously awaiting rather, whether or not our kids are going to fly and succeed, or whether they're going to falter and fall. Those are difficult seasons. And maybe some of you right now are going through a season like that. Maybe you are not enjoying this cold fall weather, because you know that that means sometime this week, you have to take your little kid over to preschool for the very first time, or kindergarten, and that's going to break your heart to leave them with this new, unknown teacher. And you know it's coming that day when you have to drop them off. You're going to slowly drive up to the kindergarten building. You're going to walk through the halls trying to hide your tears as you're holding their hand. You're going to wait awkwardly long in the doorway to make sure that they're adapting and talking and being social. And then the entire week, you're going to be sitting around wondering, are they making friends? Are they doing well? Are they obeying the teacher? They better be obeying the teacher. Or is my kid the well-behaved one or the one that's screaming, right? We, we have anxiety because we want our kids to succeed. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and this week, uh, this past weekend, instead of dropping your kids off at kindergarten, you drove 10 hours to drop your kids precious baby off at college for their freshman year. And if I was to go to your car right now, I'd probably see a car still littered with tissues from all the tears that you were mopping up on that 10-hour journey home because that's hard. That's difficult. That's a new season where you have to let go and see, are they going to succeed? Are they going to struggle? Are they going to make wise decisions? Are they going to give into peer pressure? Are they going to find a church? Are they going to feel like they have community or feel isolated and want to come home? Have I prepared them well enough? Or maybe some of you remember that moment that your 15 and a half or 16 year old gets a little piece of plastic that somehow gives them the permission to drive a multiple ton vehicle at 70 miles an hour and that's fearful letting go and saying I don't get to be the shuttle bus anymore they're on their own are they going to be like dad with the left foot driving 80 miles an hour Are they going to be like me and, and more cautious right and all these fears go through our mind I want them to get from point a to point b safely I want them to do well I even think of the time when I was living in California, about 3,000 miles from my parents. I was in my 20s at the time, but that doesn't mean parents stop wanting to parent. And I was in the hospital for a week. And the entire time I was in the hospital, I think my mom called me every hour on the hour. And she threatened every day that she was getting on a plane to fly out. And I said, please, mother, no, I am fine, right? But we never lose that drive to love, to nurture, to protect our kids and make sure that they're making the right decisions and thriving. I want us to think about that emotion today, that healthy apprehension, that desire to succeed, that desire to nurture, because those are the same actions and the same emotions that we clearly see being demonstrated in the heart of the Apostle Paul for the Thessalonian believers. Paul sees himself as the spiritual parent of the Thessalonian believers. They are his kids and because of that he wants them to succeed in their faith and he's in one of those moments of painful separation physically from his kids. He was only there in Thessalonica for three weeks when he uh, was able to win a lot of people for the gospel and start planting a church but after three weeks there was intense persecution and because of that he had to flee and go to another city And because of that, the entire time that he's been gone, he's wondering, how are my kids doing? How's their faith? Are they standing firm or are they falling? And then to make matters worse, a troubling report makes its way back to Paul that they are going through a season of intense affliction and and persecution. He heard that his kids were struggling. Imagine it this way. Imagine that as a parent, and you just dropped off your college freshman at their new college campus, you receive a phone call this week from a police officer and they said, we just wanted to give you a heads up. There's violent riots happening all across the college campus. And then for the rest of the day, you're calling your kid and they're not answering their phone and you can't get a connection with them. How would you feel as a parent in that moment? Devastated, concerned, anxious, fearful. That's exactly how Paul feels he doesn't know if his kids are standing firm in their faith or if the tempter, Satan, has tempted them and his labor is in vain and they've walked away. And once he can't handle the anguish of that any longer, he says, I'm dispatching Timothy to you to find out how you're doing and answer these painful questions and to give me some resolution to know how you're doing in the faith. Throughout this passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 3, we see... Paul's genuine paternal heart for people. We see that Paul was a discipler, a mentor, and he loved people dearly. And with those words in mind, let's go ahead and read through our passage together. 1 Thessalonians 3, we're going to read the entire chapter, so bear with me. But starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind to Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, Blameless in holiness before our God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. In this passage, you can just feel the intense love and affection and emotion that Paul has. And you can feel that intense desire to nurture and to invest in other people and see them succeeding. It's all throughout this passage. And if we were to uh, kind of say, how can we contextualize this passage and apply it to our lives? I think that we would be wise to emulate, to imitate the love and concern that Paul has for other people. So if we were to summarize our passage in one big idea today, I think it would be this. We need to develop the heart of a discipler. We need to develop the heart of a discipler. And Paul is one of the best disciples in history. And he's a great example to learn from. We need to develop the heart of a discipler. Now, some of you right now, that might have been the switch to where you just want to tune out and click off and say, well, I don't need to hear this. I'm not a discipler. This doesn't apply to me because, you know, I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm no Pastor Jeff. I don't work in full-time ministry. I haven't even been a a believer that long. This disciple thing, I'll I'll let let other people do that. I'll leave that for the professionals. I'll leave that for the full-time ministers. I'll leave that to the pastors. Me, I I don't really need to hear this. Well, if we're thinking that, though it might be tempting to think that, we couldn't be more, more wrong. Because if you bear the name of Christ follower of Christian you also bear the title of discipler. What were Jesus's final words in Matthew 28 that he left all of us with the church with? He says, go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation. To be a Christ follower is to be a discipler. You can't separate the two. Imagine it this way. Someone came up to you and said, you know, I really want to be a doctor but I refuse to work long hours. I really dislike sick kids, needles, and germs. Oh, and I don't want a job that makes me deal with people because I can't stand people. (laughs) Would you say that they're going to be a very successful doctor? Absolutely not, right? Why? Because everything they just said goes against what they say they want to be. Well, how many of us try to do that as Christians? We say, I want to be a Christ follower, but loving other people Discipling others, investing in them, being selfless and sacrificial, I don't like the sound of that. I don't like that at all. You can't have one without the other. To be a Christian is to be a discipler. And if we're called to be disciplers, then we need to develop the heart of a discipler and we need to learn from Paul's example because he's the best at it. So what's the first way? What can we do to develop the heart of a disciple? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 again. It starts off, and Paul says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, when we were, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. What Paul's talking about here is a selfless sacrifice that he made for his disciples for their betterment. So point number one, we could write it down this way. Seek to selflessly serve others. That's one of the ways that we can start to cultivate the heart of a discipler. Seek to selflessly serve others. Now, at first you might be asking, how is Paul being that selfless in this passage? Paul sends Timothy to the Thessalonian believers. What's so special about that? But Paul gives us some clues in these verses to show us how much of a sacrifice and personal cost it was to him. First of all, he says, I sent Timothy, we sent him out, and that word sending, really in the original language, bears the idea of abandoned. He says, I was abandoned by Timothy so that he could go and help you. But not only that, what does he say about his time in Athens? Paul says, I was abandoned by Timothy, but thankfully I was in Athens with all of my friends and disciples and coworkers. That's what he says. It's right there in the text, right? No. What does he say? I was left in Athens alone, alone and abandoned. Those are costly words. Paul made three different types of sacrifice here to send Timothy to Thessalonica. By sending Timothy away, Paul made a relational sacrifice. Paul loved Timothy. Timothy was his child in the faith, but not only that, Timothy was his closest companion and best friend. And to send Timothy away was to say, I'm not going to talk to my closest companion, my child in the faith, my best friend for months at a time. The journey back then, they didn't have Amtrak, they didn't have 747s, it wasn't a quick zip over to Thessalonica and then back over to Athens. This was a long, arduous journey that was going to be dangerous and difficult, and it meant saying goodbye to his best friend for months. It was a relational sacrifice. But second, it was also an emotional sacrifice. Paul just got off the boat and arrived at Athens. He's in a metropolis of the first century. It's pagan, it's secular. He doesn't know it that well. He's there, but at least he has someone to overcome those battles with. He's not facing it alone. But then he sends Timothy away, and he's left alone. I don't know about you, but if I've ever been in a place that is new and kind of scary and large, and I don't know anyone, I don't like doing it alone. That's emotionally taxing to be in a new place without knowing a single person. But he says, I'm willing to do that so Timothy can go and be a blessing to you. And then third, he was willing to make a ministry sacrifice. By Paul sending away Timothy, his co-laborer, his, bro- his brother in the faith, he essentially was taking on extra work in his own life saying, I'm freeing up the hours of my co-workers so he can go and encourage you, and I'm willing to work that much harder and take on an extra 40 hours of labor each week to plant this church in Athens. Paul made a sacrifice by sending Timothy. Why was he willing to do that? Why would Paul make these sacrifices? Because he recognized that his pain was their gain. He recognized that, yes, Timothy was a valuable ministry asset to him, but his needs were not the priority in his life. The needs of his kids in the faith, the needs of his disciples always came first. You know, a few weeks ago, all the news stations across the country were covering the dramatic rescue mission of uh, trying to deliver some uh, soccer team boys that were trapped in a cave in Thailand. And one of the stories that captured my attention the most was once they got these kids out and rescued them, do you know who the person by far that was in the worst physical condition and the weakest and and just suffering medically? It was the coach, the 25-year-old coach. And the reason he was doing the worst was because he sacrificed his ration of food and water while they were in the cave so that his boys could be strong and healthy. He understood what it meant to be a discipler. The needs of my kids, the needs of my disciples, the needs of others are placed above my own. I count others, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, more significant than, than myself. Jesus tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. But how many of us actually live that way? A lot of us live like it's a lot more of a blessed and satisfying and fulfilling life to receive than to give. A lot of us would rather be consumers than givers. A lot of us would rather have people make sacrifices for us than sacrifice for them. A lot of us don't like to be inconvenienced, but we work really, really hard in our life to have just the right amount of comfort and convenience. It ought not to be that way if we are truly following Christ's example for us. We need to selflessly serve other people. That's the summary statement for point number one. Good disciples, genuine disciples are always selfless. So as growing disciples... How can we seek to be selfless this week? How can we make those sacrifices to start serving other people? For some of us, it might be sacrificing an evening of our weekly routine to take on some type of discipleship, spiritual mentor role here at Highland. We've got people and we've got slots that we need filled in, in a one-way club working with little kids. We've got areas that you could work with high schoolers or junior hires if you've got a unique gifting, right? We've got young adults that, that uh, we, we have disciples that we need in our young adults ministries. We've got uh, different Bible study leaders that you could be a part of, a mops table leader. What could you do to sacrifice some time to begin intentionally discipling other people? And immediately the quickest push back in our mind, the walls begin to go up and we think, well, I'm just too busy for that. And it's true. We're in the 21st century. Our calendars are packed. We're all busy. We're all going, going, going all the time. But a good diagnostic question for us to ask is what am I so busy with? And looking at what our calendars are filled with because a lot of the times it's not filled with things that are serving other people. A lot of the times our calendars are packed with things that are serving ourselves, our needs, our interests, our desires. It's not selfless if it's not a sacrifice. We need to sacrificially and selflessly serve other people. As we continue in our passage we see that first we need to selflessly serve others. But also as we go into verses two through four, we see that Paul and Timothy both understood that they need to intentionally invest in spiritual relationships, intentionally invest in spiritual relationships. So that's our second point. Look at verses two through four. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in Christ, to establish you in your faith, to exhort you in your faith, so that you won't be moved by these afflictions, these afflictions you know that we're destined for. He's intentionally investing in the spiritual relationship so that their faith will stand firm in the day of testing. Paul rightly understands that mature disciples of Christ are not made by accident or in isolation. They're made by older, wiser mentors in the faith, intentionally investing in our lives. And Timothy's so good at this, and he's being dispatched by Paul to do this role because guess what? He, did, he had experienced that in his life for years. That's what Paul had been doing with him. Paul had been hands-on, intentionally investing in Timothy day in and day out for years now to where Timothy can go and do that with other people. And we can see in Timothy's example of how he intentionally invested in people. He, he exhorted and he established. He exhorted and he established. So let's start with Timothy establishing the Thessalonians in their faith. That word established really means to build a firm foundation, to strengthen It's the idea of building a strong foundation that you can construct a house upon and it's not going to fall. He was strengthening the foundation of their faith. And this was so important because Paul was only there for three weeks. You can get a foundation built in three weeks, but it's probably not the strongest in the world. Imagine if you only had three weeks with the Bible and that's all that you had for a while to kind of build up and to learn about God and to learn uh, what it means to be a Christ follower. You'd pull, walk away with some nuggets for sure, but you'd want that ongoing encouragement and to learn more. Well, that's what Timothy sent to do. He's there to build up the foundation of their faith. And he's going to do this by teaching them all that Christ has commanded. That's what Jesus says, how we make disciples in Matthew 28. One of the components is teaching them everything that Christ has commanded. Timothy's coming along to show them what it looks like to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. To teach them what it looks like to have their identity firmly rooted in Christ. To teach them all the ins and outs of what a Christ-centered life truly looks like. When we seek to disciple others, those should be our aims as well. How do we help them love God and love others more? How do we help them understand God's word deeper? How do we help them know their identity in Christ in a more rich way? He built that foundation. But secondly, he exhorted the Thessalonians in their faith. And that word exhortation is the idea of encouraging, right? Encouraging and comforting. So we didn't just build up a foundation and then walk away and say, it's up to you guys now. But exhortation is that continual coming alongside of and continuing to pour in, to encourage, to cheer on. We need exhortation in our lives just as much as we need to be established in our faith. Think about it this way. I had two friends that graduated college and went into two different professional fields and they they had two very different experiences over the first couple years. So my friend Seth Seth, when he graduated, got a new job, and they had a week-long employee training that was just fantastic. They showed him the ins and outs of the company. They really helped him understand what his job would be. But not only that, for the next two years, he got to be partnered with a senior person in his department that was his mentor. And all throughout those two years, he would come along and he could ask him questions. The mentor would come in and give him evaluations, would be there as a resource to ask questions to. That was great. It was an awesome experience for him. I had another friend named Tim, and Tim had a very different experience. He got placed into a managerial level position right out of college without any experience. They gave him three days of on-the-training kind of information, and then they said, okay, hands off, you're ready to go. go. Go and do. How do you think he did? Not very good. Seth had the much better interaction because he wasn't just built up in the beginning, but he had that ongoing coming alongside, doing life together. And that's what we need in our spiritual lives. And that's what we need to be doing with other people. Timothy established and exhorted them in their faith so that their faith could withstand any trial, any temptation, and any difficulty we see that so clearly in our text. Timothy says, this is the reason that I'm establishing and exhorting. Paul says, it's so that you won't be shaken by these afflictions. So that when life gets really, really hard, your faith is strong enough to endure and your faith isn't going to fall. That you are strong enough to take a stand for Christ and you're not going to walk away from your faith. What Paul was saying is we need disciples. We need that strong foundation and that exhortation because the Christian life is hard. There's going to be afflictions. Paul says that. We warned you when we were there. Afflictions and hardships are coming. And Paul says, I don't want you to be fair weather followers of Christ, that the moment things get hard, you walk away from the faith. Because as Christians, uh, Paul reminds them that it's awesome. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. One day in verse 13, we know that our hearts are going to be established in holiness and blameless before the Lord that is coming. But through many trials and tribulations, we must enter through the kingdom of Christ. We need disciples in our life that remind us of the ultimate goal, but also remind us that the journey there might be difficult as well. We need disciples to come along and tell us what the Christ-centered life doesn't necessarily mean. Being a Christ follower doesn't mean that your marriage is going to be easy or that your marriage is going to always be exactly what you anticipated. Uh, Being a Christ follower doesn't mean that you're never going to lose a loved one unexpectedly. Being a Christ follower doesn't mean that you're never going to face persecution and affliction and hardship. Being a Christ follower doesn't mean that you're always going to be popular and have everything that you ever wanted. It doesn't mean any of it. Being a Christ follower as a parent doesn't even necessarily guarantee that your kids are going to grow up and love the Lord. It doesn't mean any of those things. But being a Christ follower does mean that we can have the assurance that one day we can stand before Christ at his coming with our hearts secured in holiness and blameless to stand before Christ. That's important. We need people that remind us of that fact and then remind us that yes, this life is hard, but it's worth it because Christ is worth it. So how can you intentionally invest in people this week? Disciples, true disciples are always intentional. What does that look like? Siblings, Siblings, I want to talk, older siblings, I want to talk to you for just a minute. A great way that you guys can intentionally invest in spiritual relationships is to model to your younger siblings that loving Christ is a major part of your life. That it's cool to love Christ. That you're not too cool to have a relationship with them. You're not going to brush them aside, but you want to build into your younger siblings and help them have a strong and growing faith in the Lord. Maybe that's asking them what they learned in children's church this week. Maybe that's coming alongside and telling them something that you've learned or something that Christ has taught you. Your younger siblings look up to you. How can you use that to invest in them spiritually? For the other people, for the rest of us, maybe that's building just taking the first step to initiate a spiritual friendship with someone this week, inviting them out for coffee, inviting a couple over to have dinner, going on a hike with someone, and then just asking some spiritual questions, asking them what their story is, what their faith journey has looked like. Ask them, here's one of my favorite questions. What's God been teaching you in your quiet time? And then if you get the answer, I don't really know. Guess what you can say? Well, can I share share with you what God's been teaching me in mine? And then you get to pour into them and disciple them and teach them what it looks like to have a thriving quiet time. How can you invest in other people intentionally in that way? Or maybe if you're someone's accountability partner, actually holding them accountable this week. If you say that you're going to pray for them, pray for them. If you say that you're going to text them, text them. If you say you're going to check in and give them a phone call, give them that phone call. Be intentional about stepping up and keeping your word with those promises that you have in a spiritual friendship with others. So let's accept that challenge together to take that first step of intentionality. And then as we take those intentional steps to start discipling and pouring into the lives of other people, it won't be long until we'll get to see them grow and look more like Christ. There's nothing more exciting than that. And at those moments, guess what we get to do? We get to celebrate. We get to celebrate the growth that we see in other people And that's our third point. Celebrate the growth that we see in others. And that's what we see in verses six through eight that Paul is doing. Once Timothy returns with this encouraging report, Paul praises them. He says, I'm comforted. In all my affliction, I'm going through some hard times, but I feel comforted because of what you're doing. I'm proud of them. He says, because you're standing firm in your faith, I feel like I can live again. My life has been refreshed. It's been renewed. The first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is praise. He says, you guys are loving so well, it's famous throughout the region. He knows to celebrate the growth that he sees in other people. I think that's so important because we live in a culture that's not good at celebrating others. We live in a culture where we're really good at criticizing others. I once heard it this way, we need to correct others quietly, but celebrate them loudly. Oftentimes we flip that. We're quick to correct loudly loudly. And in front of people, but then we just somehow forget to ever celebrate what they're doing right. Paul understands that a good discipler knows to correct and to build and establish, but also to celebrate that the growth that he sees in others. And Paul did that because he knew that words of affirmation, that celebrating the good that others are doing is a powerful way of helping people grow and to be excited to continue down that journey. There was a report released a few years ago that said, what's a stronger motivator for people to work hard? A pizza party at the end of the week? More money or public praise from their employer? Which one do you think did the worst? Money. Pizza party beat money. And the highest was words of affirmation. People need to hear that they're doing well. They need to hear what they're doing right We need to offer words of affirmation more than we ever think we need to and then double it. I heard that recently and that stuck with me. We need to go above and beyond to affirm and encourage and celebrate the growth that we see in other people because there's nothing more discouraging and devastating than only hearing what we're doing wrong. When I was a waiter at Bob Evans uh, back in my hometown when I was just out of high school, for one month I was a, uh, they always had all these different stats and statistics for our sales and things, but I actually had the highest sales per person that month. So each customer, I got them to buy the most food, right? Out of our 30 employees, I got called into my manager's office that week. So I I walk into my manager's office. I'm excited because I, typically you get like a, I don't know, a little bonus or something for doing that. And I walk in and my manager sits me down and says, Andrew, you are doing terrible with appetizer sales. This is Bob Evans appetizer month. We're trying to push our appetizers and you're doing terrible with appetizers. Turn it around. Okay. How long do you think I wanted to work at Bob Evans at that point? (laughs) Not super long, right? It's like, okay, I I understand you can tell me that, but I, I need to hear you're doing a good job in other areas. We need both, right? And if we want Christ followers, our disciples to love following Christ, we need to not just tell them everything they're doing wrong, but we need to celebrate when we see them doing what's right. Two quick things that we can see from Paul about how to celebrate effectively. First, celebrate others in a way that's specific. Notice Paul just doesn't say, it made me glad. He says, no, I'm rejoicing. I'm celebrating because of your faith, because of your love, because of the growth and the desire that you have to see me. He gives them the reasons why. He says, I see this in your life and it's encouraging to me and I'm celebrating it. He's specific. Celebration means more when it's specific in our lives. I had two other employers in my life, and they both sent me Christmas cards, this two different employers, okay? So one employer sent me a Christmas card, and on the card, it said, thanks for all you do. And then I noticed the person beside me, their card said, thanks for all you do, from the same person. Wasn't super, was it celebrating? Kind of. Was it specific? No. Did it mean anything? No. I got another card a few years later from a different employer, and it only had three words on it. But those three words were three specific adjectives that he had picked that he thought reflected the way that I was working. It said articulate, it said Bible saturated, and it said joyful. Those three words stuck with me. Why? Because they were meaningful, they were specific. They spurred me on to want to be those things more because I realized that other people were seeing the growth that God is doing in my life. We need to do that. We need to hear, good job, I see God at work in your life. And so many of us are desperate to hear those words, but we don't hear it from anyone. We need to celebrate the growth of other people. But second, we need to celebrate others by letting them know the impact that they've made in our lives. Notice that Paul, even as the discipler, tells them, you've made an impact in my life. He says, you've comforted me in my affliction And I feel like I'm alive again because I know that you're standing firm. He says, your influence in my life has made a difference. A great application for us this week is thinking about, are there people in your lives that have made an impact for your faith in your faith journey that you've never told them, that you've never said thank you? You've never reached out to them and said, because you invested in me 10, 15, 20 years ago, I'm loving Christ and doing this now. What a great way to reach out to them this week and tell them you've made an impact in my life because nothing is more powerful than hearing these words. Your influence has changed my life and made a difference. Our summary statement for point number three, effective disciples are good at affirming. So how can we celebrate the growth of other people this week? Maybe it's sending a text or a phone call. Maybe it's sending a handwritten note to someone that you see just excelling and serving the Lord. Maybe it's the just looking intentionally for something that your kids are doing that shows the love of Christ and then pulling them aside and taking them out for ice cream and saying, we're grabbing ice cream tonight because I'm just so proud of the way that you loved your brother and sister, the way that you showed the love of Christ this week. Maybe affirming another person is just by taking the nice thoughts that you have in your head about them and then actually verbalizing it to them. So when you walk (laughs) in, crazy, right? So when you walk in and someone shakes your hand and they give you a big smile and you think, wow, I just see the joy of Christ in their life. Instead of saying hi and walking away, say to them, you know what? The way that you greeted me this morning, I I just really saw the joy of Christ in your life. Thank you for that. Why can't we do that? Why do we stop? How about we use our social media platforms to celebrate the growth of other people instead of criticize? Wouldn't that make them a lot more fun? What can we do to celebrate the growth that we see in others? And then lastly, as we look in verses 9 through 13, we see just a very large prayer from Paul. It's a beautiful prayer. There's so much in this prayer, but we don't have a lot of time to jump into it. So I just want to summarize it this way. Disciples know that they need to pray. So point number four, we need to reignite our prayer lives. We need to reignite our prayer lives. Good disciples recognize that I am just a tool in the hands of the Father. If he's not doing the work, my disciple won't grow. I want to be used by God, yes, but I need him to supply the growth. And the way that I can best love my disciple is to pray for them often. Good disciples are always prayer warriors. And we see four things that we can learn about our prayer lives in, in this passage from Paul's example. First, we need to pray consistently for our disciples. Paul says, I prayed for you night and day. Ongoing, consistent prayer. How many of us say we'll pray for someone and then A, never do, or B, if we do, it's only once and then we just kind of forget and never check in on them. We need to pray consistently for the spiritual relationships in our lives. Second is this, pray to be used by God to make a difference in your disciple's life. He says, I want to come and build up what's lacking in your faith. He says, I want to be used by God to make a difference. Pray for that opportunity to make a difference. Third, Pray for times of meaningful fellowship with your disciple. We live in crazy, busy, just a crazy, busy world that keeps us from meaningful connection with other people. Paul says, my journeys, spiritual warfare, there's things in my life that have kept me from you, but I'm praying that God directs my paths directly to you so I can talk to you face to face. Paul's saying, I'm praying for times of meaningful investment. We need to pray and protect that as well. And then lastly, pray for God to continue to grow your disciples and their love for others. He says, I'm praying that God increases you all the more. I'm praying that your love for him and for others is abounding. He says, I'm praying for that because I know that I can't make those things happen in your life. And not only that, I realize that you can't make those things happen in your life. You need the spirit working in your life to do those things. So he's praying to God and saying, please be at work and grow my disciples True disciples are prayer warriors. We need to reignite our prayer lives. And then I love where our passage ends in verse 13. He says, I'm praying that you are established, that your hearts one day at Christ's return are going to be blameless in holiness. He's looking ahead to the ultimate goal of discipleship, which is to be able to see people stand before Christ with holy hearts, ready to spend eternity with him. Why do we need to develop the heart of a discipler? because discipleship is the only way that you can invest in eternity. How big of a house you have doesn't matter. How many cars you have doesn't matter. Your job title doesn't matter. Those things don't matter in light of eternity. What does are people, and by discipling them, you can make an investment that lasts for all of eternity. Develop the heart of a discipler. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this Powerful passage that gives us so many great insights about what it looks like to genuinely be concerned about the spiritual lives and well-being of others. Father, we just want to ask today that you help us grow as disciples and grow in our desire to reach out and to love people and to reach them with the gospel of Christ. And Father, that means putting aside our selfishness. That means putting aside all the barriers that hold us back and being intentional. So this week, Father, help us to look for ways that we can intentionally reach out, that we can intentionally celebrate others, and we can just intentionally point people back to you. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.